Today, I just want to put a few things out there before I get into the sermon. One is that uh, I'm preaching today on a topic that's been happening in our nation around racism. We're going to talk about racism today. And as I'm talking about racism, I'm going to be using the labels black and white. I'm not really crazy about using labels, but they help with the context of what we're, the message and the story that I'll be sharing this morning. So really think of them, hopefully, in terms of cultural context. Also, I'm using the gospel lesson in a little bit different way this morning. I'm using it more as a metaphor of my, for my own story. I see myself as the blind man being brought to Jesus and being able to see clearly. And what we're going to be talking about today is actually how we see racism more clearly in our society. Also, the reason that we're doing this and, and speaking up, a couple more reasons. One is that one of our core practices here at FFMC is to do justice. Our core value, our core practice of doing justice is based in Micah 6.8. And in Micah 6.8, you can see that we're to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And so we as a church believe in doing justice. And this is a time where people are asking for us to do justice. In particular, I've been asked by the African-American black preachers in our city and other, or others around the nation, they have asked us white congregations, white Anglo congregations, and pastors and preachers to speak into the issue of systemic racism. And so I want to honor their request today. I want to know that we are supporting them. One of the things they've been asking us is we're tired of fighting this battle alone. We're tired of having to struggle and fight this battle and speak to this issue alone. Would you speak on our behalf? And so we're speaking on their behalf today as well and joining with them in the fight against systemic racism. And I do feel a little bit like the blind man in the story as I mentioned, and the reason is, is because of this. Uh, the verse 22, it says, some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him, begged him to touch him. And I, I feel like the black community has been asking us for some time, many years, decades even, uh, probably longer than that, and, saying, and, and bringing us, white community, to Jesus and been begging Jesus to heal us. And I feel that personally as well, that they've been begging and praying that our eyes would be open like the eyes of the blind man, that we would see more clearly and see intently what God is doing and, how, and to step into the fight against racism. The other thing I want to put out there, just good or bad, is that some people have been saying, you know, we want their pastor to speak passionately and get, sometimes get angry and say more about the issue of racism. That's personally not me. If you know me at all, I'm pr pretty much the even-keeled one, the steady Eddie in the room, so to speak. And so I don't emotionally react to things, but I think sometimes people want me to react more emotionally, but that's just not who I am. That's just not the way God shaped me and created me. The one thing that I do is that I take in lots of information. I listen to different perspectives. I listen to different stories, and I take all that, and I, in a way, synthesize it in my own mind, and I draw conclusions, but it's a thoughtful process. And so when I speak out or about something, know that it's been, I've listened to every side, every perspective that I can before drawing a conclusion. And I take that input and I synthesize it and I reflect upon God's word and I think, what does God want us to say in this matter? So know that that's the good thing about it. I'm not emotionally reactive, but when I do speak up, when I do say something, know that it's that's thought through, that there's been a process in my own mind. And so as I speak today, it's not a trivial matter that we're speaking about. So I want to share with you my own journey. 
of from, from blindness to racism to sight around this issue. And as we get started, I want to ask you the question. This is something you could throw in the chat uh, bar this morning. What was your first encounter with another culture? What was your first encounter with another culture? I think that's an important question for us all to ask because we all have those experiences. And my uh, initial encounter was actually when I, where I grew up. I grew up in a uh, rural community that was building suburban homes outside of Washington, D.C. And so uh, this rural community was becoming a suburban community. They were building new homes in the suburbs. And so we had moved there and bought one of those new homes. My parents both work as teachers in the school system. And we oriented ourselves to the city of Washington, D.C. And next door to us in our rural community, so you can imagine new people are moving in, and right next door to us, uh, a family moved in, a black family moved in right next door. And I remember my parents telling me uh, things like, treat, you treat everybody the same, we're all equal in God's eyes, we are valued, and so we, we treat, felt like we treated everybody in our neighborhood the same. And I don't know that everybody in our neighborhood felt that way or responded that way, but that's the way my parents raised us. And so we did. We, we got along well with that uh, family next to us, and we grew up together and played together in, in the streets and in our neighborhood. So inclusivity, I would say to you, inclusivity was a part of our teaching and upbringing, even as children, even to, to include anybody of any cultural background. This actually extended into high school. Uh, one of my friends, Friends in high school was Ravender. He was uh, the only Indian uh, in our Indian culture background uh, teen in our high school. In fact, in our high school, you could count the people of color on one hand. That's how many we had out of maybe 800,000 students. And in my graduating class, there was over 200 students, and that was so there was very few of those. Now, one thing I do remember that when I was in high school, we had. Uh, uh, a black family. Uh, their son was in our graduating class. His name was Eric. And I want you to imagine with me what happened to Eric and his family when we were in high school. Uh, I wasn't there for this, but I'm going on recollection, and my memory, you know, gets worse every year. But here's what happened. I want you to imagine that four teenagers show up in your front yard on your lawn and they've come to tell you that you don't belong in this community anymore. That they come, they're not only standing there to tell you that you don't belong, but they're standing there with uh, uh, tire jacks and crowbars and baseball bats in their hands. And they are standing on your front yard. That's exactly what happened to Eric and his family. Four white teenagers drove to Eric's house, stood in his front lawn, and told them they didn't belong in our community. Now, it's interesting, as I look back on that story, that what happened was Eric was there, his mom came out, and his sister. And now my understanding is that a fight broke out in their front lawn as they defended their home, and they defended their, their equality, basically, and their right to be a part of the community. And those four teenagers went home with their tail between their legs. So on the inside, when I heard that story the next day at school and what had happened the next day at school, I remember like being thankful that Eric and his family stood their ground and were still a part of our community. But I want to ask some questions now that I wasn't asking then. One question is this, why didn't Eric's family call the police? Police were never called. Why didn't they call? You see, I was taught and raised that if you have a problem, in fact, if you had four teenagers with weapons show up in your front yard, who would you call? You'd call the police. 
Eric's family didn't do that. They fought, they defended their own property on their own with no one's help. Think about that. I also wonder, why, where were their neighbors, their suburban neighbors, their inclusive neighbors that watched this unfold? What happened, where were they? Where was their voice in this? Why was no one stepping up to help them? Why was nobody standing up for them? The other question I ask is, why the day afterwards, the next day, it just, we as a community went on and acted like it never happened? Like nobody talked about it after that. No, never made it into the local newspaper. Nothing about what had happened about this incident. We just went about our business as though nothing had happened in our neighborhood. But I want to imagine what it would have been like to be Eric and his family. <laughs> nobody speaks up. Everybody stays silent. We don't, can't call the police. We have to defend our property on our own. Think about that. Think about the position that they were in in our community. And this is the first time, the reason we weren't asking those questions at the time, and the reason that we were silent is because we were blinded by the white. We were blinded by our dominant white culture. We could not see what they saw. We couldn't put ourselves in their shoes. And that's what I want to suggest to you, that we've been blinded by the white. And to be honest, we should have been asking those questions then. Those are the 19, that was in the 1980s. Let me fast forward for you to another thing that happened in my life that opened up my eyes, and it was 2007. More recently, I was uh, hired on to be staff for our denomination, and I was denominational staff, and I was a part of a team responsible for the western part of Maryland. So we had about 100 churches in the western part of our state, and it, uh, we were to supervise, and about 30 of those churches I supervised and coached pastors, and in a way I was like uh, what you might know here in our denomination as a superintendent. And so I was overseeing these 30 churches. Now, my friend William, he was also on our team. William is a black pastor from who was preaching in West Baltimore before he came on staff. And we were a part of the same team, and we got to become friends, and we got to work together, and we got along really well. And one particular day, we were driving through one of our communities where one of our churches was to go visit a church and do a site visit. And as we're driving into the community, in the western part of our state, I said to William, I said, why don't we grab some lunch? And he's like, yeah, that's a great, let's grab some lunch, which is, and then you have the, the typical lunch discussion. Well, what do you want? I'm Mexican, you know, you have all these options, right? And uh, so we're having this discussion, and as we're driving through the town, we're driving down Main Street, and uh, he looks, he's in the passenger side, I'm driving the car, and he, he looks and he points at a restaurant, and he says, well, we can't go there. And he says, and it's probably not a good idea for, for us to go there. And I, and I can't go there either. And I remember like saying to, like, William, what are you talking about? What do you mean you can't go there? You can go to any of these places. He's like, no, I wouldn't be welcome there. Uh, I, I don't think they would welcome me in that establishment. And I said, William, what are you talking about? There's, you can go any place you want to go to. This is a free country. You, you and I are equals. What, you know, we got in this discussion, and he says, but Matt, you don't understand. This is, it's not safe for me. And so we parked a car, and we're walking down the main street to a restaurant that uh, that he felt like we could go to. And as we're walking down the street, he, he starts to explain to me, and he points something out to me in a store window. It was a very small decal in the corner of a store window, and it was the very small decal of a Confederate flag in the corner of the window. It is something that he saw that I didn't see. And the reason he didn't feel welcome there was because of that little sticker in the window, right? 
And he saw other things in other shops that just kind of made him pause. And so what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that he saw this community that I had driven through a dozen times and eaten in different restaurants a dozen times. He was seeing it totally different through different eyes than I was seeing it. I felt safe in that community. I felt like I could go anywhere I wanted, but William could not. He did not feel safe in that community. And I think about that moment where my eyes began to get opened up, right? Where I, my eyes started to come open to the, to the reality, not the possibility, but the reality of racism in our country. You see, up until then, I had been blinded by the white, by my dominant white culture. Now, William was the first one to be Jesus for me on this issue. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Why did Jesus lead the man out of the village before he healed him? You see, metaphorically speaking, for me, William was the one who led me out of the village, the white village, the white dominant culture, that village, and led me out of that village and helped me to see things from his perspective, right? He was the one, like Jesus, leading me out of my village so that I could see again and see correctly, and see clearly, like the blind man. You know, and I want to say to those people, if you're a person of color today, thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you for sharing your stories. Keep doing that. We know you're tired. We know it's, it, you have to keep telling it and saying it again and again, but keep saying it until we understand it. Keep telling us your perspective. Thank you for doing that for so long. You see, Jesus, was take, uh, Jesus, through William, was taking me outside my village. Now, that was 2007. What happened in 2008 in our nation? What was going on uh, in terms of race relations in our nation in 2008? Does anybody remember? Just raise your hand. Actually, I can't see you. Oh, I see a couple hands here. Who was elected president in 2008? Our first African American, our first black president was Obama. Elected in 2008, I remember being in the D.C. area and, and the celebration in the streets and the celebration in the communities, particularly the black community, as well as all communities. And everybody was celebrating the election of Obama because he was the first black president. Now, here's what was going on in my mind, right? And maybe in some of our minds in the white dominant culture. Here's what was happening. We were saying things to ourselves like, see, everybody's equal. See, everything that our parents told us about anybody can become president. You know, you're taught when you're a kid that if you want to grow up to be president, you can be president. See, we do live in a, our, our society is not racist at all. See, this proves it, right? We felt vindicated. We felt validated that we were an equal, inclusive nation, that we are for people of all colors and races and nations, and that you are welcome here. That's what we thought in 2008. 2008, we were validated in a way about our values as a country and around the issue of racism. Little did we know that maybe what was happening was that in a sense, the closet door on the white culture village was being opened on the issue. The skeleton of racism was coming out of the closet. And if you fast forward to Obama's second term, we begin to see, right, uh, what happened in 2014 was the first spark in Ferguson, and then again in 2015 with the Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore. And so all of a sudden, we, we, we had been celebrating that racism was gone from our country, but in a sense, it was just beginning to get more exposed, right? 
I remember I was meeting with a group of African-American pastors in the Baltimore, Washington area. We had pastors from D.C. and Baltimore area, and we were meeting together on a regular basis. And I remember listening to the stories as we were talking about the Freddie Gray riots. They, uh, black pastors were sharing their stories with me, and I'm so glad that I just listened to their stories because they were talking about stories and how they had been treated by the police and how they had been pulled over and what happened to them in those instances. I remember uh, just actually a year ago, another colleague of mine was pulled over by a police officer in his driveway, black pastor pulled over in his home of his driveway, lights flashing. He, he says, I kept my hands on the wheel. The officer walked up to the car and asked me what I was doing there, and I told him, I live here. This is my home. And he says, well, you looked suspicious. He looked suspicious driving through his own neighborhood. That's what he was told by that officer. You see, I was given a different script than as a white person than a black person is given about when you get pulled over. So my parents said to me, if you get pulled over, notice the word if you get pulled over. My black brothers and sisters is not if they get pulled over, it's when they get pulled over. But I was told that if I get pulled over, you know, license, registration, be respectful to the officer. Say yes, sir, no, sir, or no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, at this, in this point in time. And so uh, that's not what they were told. They were told that if a police officer pulls you over, when you're pulled over, you keep your hands on the wheel. Don't put your hands in your pocket. If you're asked to step outside your car, keep your hands out of your pocket, keep your hands up in the air where they can see them. You do not ever do anything that might cause them to want to harm you. You see, what parents told their black children when they got their licenses is different than what I was told when I got my license, and that's because there's systemic racism in our country. That script was different. Keep your hands on the wheel. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Keep your hands up. And when they shared these stories, they shared them with anger and frustration and bitterness with me. And I remember not knowing what to do with the anger. And here's the other dilemma for me. My brother's a police officer, and I have great respect for him, and he does a great job. My uncle's a retired police officer. I was a volunteer chaplain for the Maryland State Police for a short time. I've been to the police academy. I've been through some of the training that police officers go through. So I have this experience of our officers and our policing community being very professional and courteous and respectful and, e and giving equal, uh, equal care to all people. That's what I've seen from the ride-alongs that I've been on, from the places I've been. But so what was happening inside of me was I would hear these stories from my black brothers and sisters about how they were being treated and I knew police officers. And this created a real struggle inside of me, a real tension inside of me. I remember it doing that. And here's what I did at the time. Here's, I want to confess to you what I did. I minimized their stories. I minimized their experience. I found ways to rationalize it and justify it from my white eyes, my white dominant culture eyes. And so I was still, I, I was starting to see a little bit like the blind man in the story, but I was still, it was still fuzzy. It wasn't clear. I was seeing people, but I was just seeing trees and I was minimizing their experience because I couldn't make sense of it. But fast forward to now and you hear about Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and the list goes on. Story after story after story. At some point, you have to stop minimizing and stop rationalizing and stop justifying. 
At some point, you have to say, George Floyd, regardless of his crimes, regardless of what he had in his bloodstream that day, he did not deserve to die. He did not deserve the capital punishment on our streets without due process, without a jury, without a judge. No, his life was taken. There was no innocent until proven guilty for George Floyd, and he received the capital death penalty. That should not happen to anyone on the streets of our nation. That's racism. That's the, that's the problem with systemic racism. And we, start, we need to stop minimizing it by making excuses for what, he, what George Floyd's background or history or criminal history, his life mattered and his life was taken in our streets. I'm also upset about Ahmaud Arbery that two vigilantes, white racist vigilantes, went after Ahmad, and they intentionally took out his life. That is despicable. It's sin upon sin. Here's the thing. Sin will never bring about justice. As long as sin is in the streets, as long as murder is in the streets, justice will not prevail. And we claim to be people who do justice, who seek justice. So let's do it. So here's the thing I want to say to you that may make you uncomfortable. See, the problem is that my whiteness is actually part of my blindness. Part of my blind spot is that I am seeing the world through a dominant, the lens of a dominant culture where we are at here. And that's the problem. And if me saying this and using this label makes you uncomfortable, good. I want you to be uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. In fact, I'm mad. And the person I'm mad at is not the police. It's actually me. I'm mad at my complacency. I'm mad at my silence. I'm mad that it took me so long to get to this point. It's been 400 years for our black brothers and sisters. Think about it. They've been fighting this fight for that long, asking for justice, asking for us to see what they see. And you know, like the blind man, I needed a second touch. <laughs> George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, they were my second touch. They were the ones that opened up my eyes. And I feel like we as a nation have reached a tipping point. Now you may be thinking this is the start of a race war, right? It feels like it. The riots in the streets. I hope this isn't the beginning of a race war. I actually hope it's the end of the race war. It's actually coming to the point where we can now address the issues of systemic racism in our society. We've reached a tipping point, and I'm glad we have. Here's the point. Here's the question people are asking right now, and I hear many good, well-intentioned people asking this question. What can I do? I want to ask a different question. I want to ask a different question that I think we have to answer before we ask the what do I do question, and many people are rushing out to do something, and that's great. But there's a question that comes before that. And the question is this, how can I see better? How can I see better? How can I see more clearly? Notice that the blind man had to look more intently to see clearly after he was healed by Jesus. And that's what I think we have to be asking ourselves. The Center for Contemplation and Action says we need a contemplative mind to do compassionate action. The point is, you and I have to see clearly to be able to help well and help with compassion rather than just be reactive to what's going on around us. So think about that. So I want to give you some things, some things that will help you to see more clearly today. So the first thing I would ask you to do 
and I'm actually going to give you an, uh, an opportunity to do this right now, is listen to the stories of people of color, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, Latino, whoever they are in your world, listen to their stories, ask for their perspective. And I want to share some of that perspective with you this morning. Uh, Darrell uh, is a part of our congregation, and he shared this poem with one of our classes a couple of weeks ago, so I asked him to share it with you today. And I want, us to, I want you to listen to his perspective on what's been happening recently. Let's look at that, that poem from Darrell this morning. Hello, lovable people. I have a poem. Thanks for letting me share it with you all. I wrote it a day or two after George Floyd was murdered while walking into work. It kind of came to me throughout that day. And it's a response to my 21 plus years of life in America. You've always been there. You've always been there. Not for me, but right beside me. You've always been there. In the places you belong, but I don't. You've always been there. So when we lay in a pool of our own blood, it's always wrong place, wrong time for us to stand there. Not even on our knees. We can't kneel here without you terrorizing our mothers and fathers, calling us sons of female dogs. We can't breathe here in this space because this is all your air as you strip away our breath, kneeling on our necks. You have four open seasons. We are being hunted year round. Pop, pop, pop. Some popcorn for the witnesses as we're dying, hanging from social media post. For all eyes to see, we sing. Hands up, don't shoot. Pop, pop, pop. The bullets play the chorus on our windpipes. Will you always be there? Not for me, but beside me in the places you belong, but I don't. From New York to the Mexico border, from Mauna Kea to Minnesota, from Ferguson to Standing Rock, to the Florida corner store, to grandma's front yard, to the places we call living room, to the courtroom and judgment seat, you've always been there. When you say every vote counts, but mine never does, what do I look like picking between poisons for my kids to drink? Pop, pop, pop! Tear gas. Feel the lungs trying to control the rage. But joke's on you. I already cried my last tears yesterday. Do you surrender? Because I already did. And I can't do it again. Because the last time was for all time. Contemplating the value of a life when Jesus gave his for my soul to have a way to be saved hollow PowerPoints aimed at me as I march with this crosshair across my back. You shoot and miss. Watch for it to come back like a boomerang or deja vu. For some reason, I feel like I've been here before. The path you lay before me is a maze or a trap. Never-ending double standards, the author of confusion. Never, been, never be good enough to live here, according to you. But I'm still breathing never been a reason or a season for me to stop believing in a higher power. No doubt I'm surrounded and never alone. Glory be! Belly dancing beast, you're a coward and a creep. 
The moment I realized, realized I was on top and started to fall, so next moves were on the fly. Now the only time my feet touch the ground is to rest or to nest or to give glory to the Most High. So that's why I figured I was born without wings because our God is good all the time and all the time. Amen. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Thank you, Darrell, for sharing that with us this morning. So one thing you can do is listen to stories like Darrell's story. Uh, the other thing you could do also is take the implicit bias test. Uh, you can find that at implicit.harvard.edu. This is actually part of a project that Harvard's been doing for many years now, and you can be a part of that. There are many different tests you can take on there to find out if you have any implicit bias uh, towards uh, people of color or other identities. You can look at their variety of tests on there that you can take and just kind of just do it for your own self-assessment to see if you have any of your own bias in you. Uh, also, the other thing you can do is read the book called White Awake, uh, where actually some of us are discussing it this summer. The group is really large and really full, so I'm not necessarily inviting you to add more people in, but I encourage you to get the book and read the book, and uh, we'll actually, at the end of the summer, uh, in the, have some opportunities for people to discuss next steps about that. Also, last week, we shared some links to our denominational resources. Our denomination, the Free Methodist Church, has had a long history and roots uh, all the way back to the Emancipation Proclamation, which is happening this week, the anniversary, 155th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation will be June 19th this week. And uh, our denomination actually has been a part of the abolitionist movement since that time and was brought up out of and founded out of that movement, uh, anti-slavery movement. So there's our roots. Now, it doesn't mean we've been perfect along the way or that we've always gotten it right as a denomination, but know that that's a part of our stance as a denomination. You can see what our bishops are saying today about what's happening in our nation. So also I want to give you some discussion questions as you head to your groups today, classes today, or are going to be discussing with your family. I hope you have a discussion with your kids if you haven't already done so. And these are some questions for you to talk about. Um, one, share an experience when you first realized there was racism in the world. What was your reaction? Share that story, just as I've shared some of my stories today. Number two, what ways have you been blinded by your own cultural perspective? And that actually applies to people of all cultures. All of us have our own blind spots. Number three, is there anything you need to confess or repent of in terms of racism? Or maybe both confess and repent uh, as well. You could do both. It'd be great. Uh, but in terms of this, is there any way thing you need to address? And then number four, what steps are you willing to take to learn more about the sin of racism? And we've mentioned that before, that racism is a sin. Anytime we play favorites, we're not reflecting God's image to other people. So those are some questions here this morning. I want to pray right now, though, and just, I want to invite us into a, a, a stance, a, a position, an attitude of humility right now as we come before God. And I want to pray with an attitude of humility. And so wherever you are, maybe bow your head and, uh, or maybe even take a knee or get on your knees right now. Just take a position of humility right now as we pray together. Let's pray.